welcome to the weekly podcast of River Valley Church. We're glad you're here. Our heart is to lead people to Jesus and launch them into their God-given purpose. So we pray you would encounter God in a fresh, new way today. To learn more about our church, visit rivervalley.org. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. It is great today to see all of you here, and uh, wonderful to have Pastor John Bevere with us uh, this weekend preaching. Uh, we are new friends. I'm going to tell you this. We are new friends. Our worlds, you know, we have groups that we travel in, and it was one of these moments where just a couple months ago at the ARC conference, the Association of Related Churches, I serve on that lead team, and we help plant churches and start churches. He was there at our conference, and uh, we met each other. It was just a brief encounter, but we could feel like there was a connection. Like, I, I said, I want to have you come to the church. He's like, I could tell we can resonate. He said, I, let's, let's work on something. And I said, let's get this to, on the schedule. Let's have you come and speak at River Valley. We need to hear the message that God has laid on your heart. It needs to be something we need to hear. So when we did that, he said, you know, I'm booked, I'm booked, I'm booked way out. And I know that a speaker like John Bevere, he's booked months and sometimes years in advance. And uh, we could both feel that it was a God thing, that he needed to be here. And uh, he knew it, and I knew it. And he said, I'm going to give you a weekend off that I have in June. I have a weekend scheduled to be off, but I feel that it's so important that we get there and we get this thing going uh, that I'm going to give you that weekend off. And uh, I said, well, if you come on your weekend off, I promise I will take you golfing. So I took him golfing yesterday, all right? So he got a little bit, and then we've been working him like crazy, all right? So he is here, fourth service. And I'm going to tell you this. He preaches. I know what it's like to preach four services. And when you're tired and you're spent, but you're doing it because it's what God has called you to do, and you're tired. And sometimes after service on Sunday, I'm just kind of like, uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah, right, I, don't, I give away my money, so don't talk to me. But anyways, I just, I'm just, I'm tired, and I know that he's tired, and I know that he's been preaching hard. I know that he's got a two-hour message he's going to try to deliver in 40 minutes. I know that he's got something that our church needs to hear. And so I want you to be a, a participant in the sermon. I noticed that uh, he loves feedback, so be, feel free to if, give feedback during the sermon. It's good, and I know a lot of Minnesotans, we just do this, we're like, this is feedback, you know, so vocalize your feedback, all right? And I want you to welcome my new friend, your new friend, John Bevere, as he comes to preach today. Hey, hello, hello, hello. Hey, let's everybody stand up. I'm going to pray before I preach. It's so good to be here. I absolutely have fallen in love with this church. You guys, I knew you would be this way because when Lisa and I met your pastors, Pastor Rob and Pastor Becca, we just knew, oh my goodness, they're going to have an amazing church. And they do because they're amazing people. How many of you know you have absolutely amazing leaders, right? Yeah. And then um, got to go out and play golf yesterday and met Pastor Darren. And I thought, wow, what an amazing, amazing associate pastor and uh, I met his wife, and just beautiful people, all on the staff. I just want to thank you guys, you just the whole staff, the way they've treated me. I just feel like royalty. I'm actually not tired because I've been so refreshed by you guys. I, I, and I, I know that usually you are when you do as many services as we've done. You're usually tired. But I've been so refreshed by the people that I am just energetic. And so you're getting, you're getting 100% today, all right? All right? All right. So... Let me start out 
by showing you the people that are so dear to me, and that is my family. And I want to show you my gorgeous family right here. You will see my beautiful, beautiful wife of 29 years of marriage. That is Lisa and my four amazing sons. And then sandwiched in between all those guys is a beautiful girl who looks like Lisa. That's because boys always marry their mothers when they have good mothers, all right? And so anyway, that is my daughter-in-law who I've affectionately adopted as my daughter. Uh, Two years ago, I was preaching in Moscow, Russia, and I was speaking to 1,200 pastors there. And God gave me my 50th birthday present, and that is my first G-baby. And so there is Asher Alexander Bevere. That is my boy. (laughs) I said this last service, I always show him because I preach so much better after seeing him. And then two months ago... God, actually it was three months ago, God gave us the first girl born in the Bevere family since 1967, and that is Sophia Grace. There is my girl, Sophia Grace. Wow. She's so beautiful. So, of course, she gets anything she wants from G-Daddy. You wonder what this G-Daddy stuff is. I am way too young to be grandpa. That is banned from our household. I am G-Daddy. NG for short, okay? So anyway, listen, we're going to get right into the Word. Are you hungry? All right, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for this church, this amazing church that you've planted to be such a bright light, not only in northern United States, but the nations of the world. Father, I'm asking today that you give us the best for last. Holy Spirit of God, invade this sanctuary and glorify our Lord and Master Jesus in a way, Lord, like we've not experienced before. And I thank you. And I praise you, and I give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody that agrees, shouts. Now, come on, give him praise for what he's going to do. Give him praise. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. All right, today I want to talk to you out of the newest book that I've written. Actually, it's not the newest. The newest one's coming out in December. But this one's called Extraordinary, The Life You're Meant to Live. How many of you know that God has called you to live an extraordinary life? How do I know that? Ephesians chapter 3 in the Message Bible declares that God's plan for your life is an extraordinary plan. So we better start out by defining the word extraordinary. What does it mean? That word is defined as to go beyond what is usual. It means to exceed the common measure. Sometimes we can better understand what a word is by looking at what it isn't. The antonyms of extraordinary are common, ordinary, or normal. So I want you to think with me, the opposite of living an extraordinary life is to live a normal life. Unless it's been suppressed in you, there is an inborn, God-given innate desire in you to live an extraordinary life. Now this has not been the image that has been portrayed of Christianity. One of the things that kept me from becoming a Christian for years and years and years was the image that was portrayed of Christianity. I, like so many other people, saw Christians as backward, ignorant, and passive people. I mean, the concept of pioneers who lived and thought outside the box and lived in extraordinary ways just didn't come to mind when I thought about becoming a Christian. I thought to become a Christian was to lose individualism, to forego creativity, excellence, passion, the ability to excel in life. However, this is not what God says, for God says in Genesis 1, 27, that God created human beings to be God-like. Everybody say God-like. How many of you know God's not ordinary? He's definitely extraordinary. According to Genesis 1.27, we were created to reflect His nature. If you look at the early church, 
The early church was constantly having to convince people that they weren't superheroes or gods. If you look at Peter, Peter's having to convince a Roman officer of the most powerful military in the whole world, get up and stop worshiping me. I'm not a superhero or a god. Paul has got to convince the entire city of Lystra that he and Barnabas were not superheroes or gods. If you look at all the people in Malta, they jumped to the conclusion that Paul was a superhero or a god. If you look at the citizens of Thessalonica, Greece, they reported on the evening news, hey, the men that have turned the world upside down have now come here to our city. So the believers were referred to people that has turned the world upside down. If you look at the citizens in Jerusalem, we're talking about the unbelievers. The Bible said everyone had high regard for the Christians. Now is this the way it is today? I mean, come on, think with me. When Hollywood's wanting to make a movie about a superhero or a god, do they immediately think about a Christian? No. Are we constantly having to convince people we're not superheroes? No. So you know what that means? Something is really, really, really amiss. The fact is this, God has not only called you to live an extraordinary life, He has also empowered you to do so. It does not matter if you're in the educational field or the business world or the medical field or the athletic realm. God has called you to live an extraordinary life in the realm of influence that He's called you to. Can you say amen to that? So the first question we got to ask this morning is this, how do we do it? How do we live the extraordinary life? Would you like to know the answer? The grace of God. Now, this is where the huge, and I mean huge, disconnect occurs in the American church. About a year and a half ago, a nationwide survey was done with over 5,000 Christians all across America. We are talking born-again, born-again, Bible-believing, Sunday morning church-attending Christians. In this survey, a question was asked, Give three or more definitions or descriptions of the grace of God. The overwhelming majority of the responses were this. Salvation, a free gift, and forgiveness of sins. Now I am so glad that Americans understand that we're saved by grace. And only by grace. And you cannot earn that grace. Because it is the God's unmerited gift. And it is by the grace of God that our sins have been remitted. Thank God American Christians understand that. Martin Luther did a good job, especially in Minnesota. However, <laughs> however, this is where the tragedy occurred in the survey. Only 2%, and the actual figure was 1.9%, of those over 5,000 Christians that were polled said that grace was God's empowerment. Yet this is exactly how God himself defines or describes his grace. He said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he said, my grace is all you need for my, everybody shout it, lift the roof for me. For my power works best in your human inability or your human weakness. Now, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible and you go to this scripture, these words are red. They're not black. That means they're not the words of the Apostle Paul. They're the words from the mouth of God himself. So God refers to his grace as his power, yet only 2% of the American Christians understand that. How does the Apostle Peter refer to the grace of God? He says in 1 Peter chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, Grace be multiplied to you as His divine, one more time, power has given to us all things that pertain to an extraordinary life and godliness. I added in the word extraordinary because life with God is extraordinary, all right? 
But do you notice Peter refers to the grace of God as God's divine power. Now let me get academic just for a minute. And let me go back to the Greek language where our manuscripts come from. If you look at the Greek word that is most frequently used for grace in the New Testament, it is the Greek word charis. Alright? If you look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for we are saved by grace, reads we are saved by charis. Strong's defines this word as gift, favor, benefit, gracious, and liberality. If you take this initial definition that Strong's gives and you couple it together with selected scriptures in the book of Ephesians, Galatians, and Romans, you get the definition of grace that the majority of the American Christians are familiar with. However, Strong's does not stop. He continues to define this word as the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. So you can see there is an outward reflection of what's done in the heart. That is the empowerment of grace. Do you remember in Acts chapter 11 when Barnabas went to the churches in Antioch? The Bible says he saw the grace of God on the people. He didn't hear about it. He saw the reflection of the empowerment and reported it. Another encyclopedia defines this Greek word as God's empowering presence in one's life. Now, my definition after years of prayer and study is simply this. God's empowerment that gives us the ability to go beyond our natural ability. Some of you need to hear that again. And I hope you're writing it down because there's a lot of prayer behind that, okay? God's empowerment that gives you the ability to go beyond your natural ability. That's the grace of God. Now, why is it such a tragedy that only 2% of the American Christians understand this? Well, let me do a little hypothetical, all right? Let's say that we've discovered a tribe in Africa. It's a small tribe. They live in the bush near the equator. And in our research, we discover that this tribe, in order to get fresh water, they have to walk two miles every day to the nearest spring, get the water, and carry that heavy water back to their people in the bush. Whenever they need food, how many of you know animals just don't walk through their camp in the bush and say, Hi, I'm your lunch today. Spear me. They have to hunt the animals. Sometimes they may kill the wildebeest or the antelope or the zebra. They may kill it eight miles away from their camp in the bush. And they've got to carry that heavy, dead animal eight or nine miles back to their camp in the bush. Sometimes when they need medical supplies that they can't get in the bush, they've got to walk 35 miles to the nearest village to get the medical supplies and carry them back to their camp in the bush. So you know what we decide to do? We're going to give them a gift. We're going to be favorable to them. Look at the definition of grace. We're going to benefit them. We're going to be gracious. We're going to be liberal with them. You know what we decide? We're going to buy them a brand new 2011 Land Rover. So we ship the Land Rover to Africa. We park it outside the bush. We go into the bush, get the chief and the small tribe. We bring them out and we say, Chief, this is our gift to you. We put him in the passenger seat, in the front seat. We get in, we fire up the vehicle. We say, chief, this Land Rover is amazing. It's got air conditioning in it. So when it's 108 degrees, push this button, you get a nice comfortable 72. Not only that, chief, we got a heater in this baby. So when it's really cold at night, push that button, you get a cozy 75 degrees. Not only that, chief, we got an XM satellite radio in this baby. You know what that means? You can hear Pastor Rob and Pastor Becca all the way from River, right? River? 
River Valley Church. <laughs> Live every Sunday morning. My mind went a little blank there. I was thinking, uh, where are we? Apple Valley. Okay, you just got to understand, I just got back from the Middle East. We're in Apple Valley. <laughs> Man, I'm, I, you can tell, maybe I am a little tired right now. <laughs> and not only that, Chief, we got a DVD player in this baby. So we pull out some movies like Night at the Museum, Avatar. We plug in Avatar, and the Chief is amazed by the blue people. <laughs> and we say, we also got a CD player in this baby, right? And so we whip out a United Hill song and we plug it in and he's amazed by the worship that's coming over inside that vehicle. So we get out of the vehicle and the chief is like, oh my, this is really ours. Oh yeah, it's yours. What do we give you for this thing? Oh no, chief, you could never pay for this vehicle. It is our gift to you because we love you so much. So we leave. But after we leave, we later on hear that they're still walking two miles every day to the watering hole and carrying the water. They're still carrying the heavy animals eight or nine miles back. They're still walking 35 miles to the village. Why? Because we neglected to tell the chief the primary functional definition of the Land Rover is transportation. Well, we've neglected to tell the church in America that the primary functional definition of the grace of God is His empowerment. You say, I'm not getting excited over that statement. You just said primary. Well, about a year and a half ago, I was walking around my house, and Lisa and the boys were gone. I'd been praying in the Spirit for about 30 minutes. And the Lord asked me a question I will never, ever, ever forget. He said, how did I introduce grace in my book, the New Testament? Now, as an author that's written 14 books, that question meant something to me because when I'm writing a book and I'm introducing a term that I know the general public is not familiar with, I've got to give the primary definition when I introduce it. Later on in the book, I can give second and third definitions. But I've got to give the primary when I introduce it, correct? Okay, let me just make sure we're all on the same page. If I'm writing a letter to the chief in Africa, what am I going to say in the first paragraph? We're giving you a Land Rover. Its primary function is transportation. Now you don't have to walk two miles every day to the watering hole, just drive there and haul the water back. Now just haul the animals eight miles back from the hunt where, at the spot of the kill. Now just drive and haul back the medical supplies from 35 miles away in the tenth of the time. Because the chief has never seen a vehicle before. Then in the second paragraph, I'm going to tell them about the air conditioner and the heater. Third paragraph, XM satellite radio. Fourth paragraph, DVD player and CD player. But I'm going to give them the primary functional definition when I introduce it. Correct? So the Lord says to me, how did I introduce grace in my book, the New Testament? Now, I'm praying, and I thought, I don't know. So I ran to my computer. I got on my Bible concordance, and I found out how God introduces grace in the New Testament. Would you like to see it? John 1.16. And it says, and of Jesus's, his would be Jesus's, fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Now, I've got a friend who lives in Athens, Greece, who not only was born in Greece, speaking Greek as his mother tongue, but he has studied ancient Greek. And I wrote to him and I said, Panos, his name is Panos Zechariah. I said, how, what does John mean in the Greek when he says this grace for grace? He writes me back and he says, the apostle is saying, this is the fullness or the completeness or the overflow of what grace does for us. What is the fullness, completeness, or overflow of what grace does for us? 
It gives us the fullness of Jesus. Okay, you're not getting this. Because you'd be shouting right now. Like the twins winning the World Series right now, okay? Let me help you understand what he's saying here. If I go to Apple Valley, okay, high school, and I look and I, and I gather the boys together on the varsity basketball team at Apple Valley High School, and I find the worst basketball player on the team. He's the guy that sits at the bench the whole game. And I bring him over to the corner, and I say to this kid, hey, we have the new scientific means that we can put on you the fullness of LeBron James. What do you think he's going to say? Dude, put it on me right now. And what's he going to do? He's going to start. Apple Valley's going to win the state tournament. And he's going to the NBA right after his senior year. Right? What happens if I walk up to a freshman architect student at the University of Minnesota? And I say to this freshman, we have the new scientific means that we can put on you the fullness of Frank Lloyd Wright. Greatest architect in the 20th century. That kid's going to go, dude, put it on me right now. And what's he going to do? He's going to leave University of Minnesota and start his award-winning career. What if I walk up to a struggling businessman and I say to the struggling businessman, we have the new scientific means to put on you the fullness of Donald Trump, the greatest entrepreneur of our generation. What do you think that guy's going to say? Put it on me right now. And what's he going to do? He's going to start thinking of ways of investing he's never thought of before. Well, Grace hadn't given us the fullness of Donald Trump or Frank Lloyd Wright or LeBron James, or Albert Einstein, or Beethoven. It has given us the fullness of Jesus Christ himself. That's power, baby. See, Peter says in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, that grace has made us to be partakers of the divine nature. Did you hear that? The divine DNA. Are you getting this? What does the word nature mean? It means this. It means the essential qualities or character of a person. You understand that grace has given us the fullness of the essential qualities and character of Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle John, when he's writing his letter in his 80s, he writes this amazing statement. As Jesus is. He's doing pretty good. So are we in the next life? You going to let me preach heresy or are you going to yell at me? <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, it will be the next life. It's not heresy. But that's not what he said. He said, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. See, here's the problem. You know, when I got my first computer, when I got my first computer with Windows on it, I opened it up, turned it on, moved the pointer around, shut it, opened up a few programs, shut it, thought, ooh. Then I sat next to an com- expert in the computer, and he started taking my computer and started doing things, and I went, dude, I can do that? He said, you could have done it all along. Then he'd do something else, and I go, no way. I can do that. He says, John, you could have done it all along. And he kept doing that. He was showing me what I had. John is saying, put that scripture back up. As he is. Okay. 
So are we. See, this is why I get so angry. And I mean really angry. When some preacher stands up and goes, in this false humility. And you know, false humility will cheat you of your reward in Christ. The Bible says that. But he goes, well, you know, we Christians, we're really no different than sinners. We're just forgiven. I think, run out of the building, shut the mic off, change the channel as fast as you can. He's literally filling the air with the doctrine of a demon. He's disempowering the church. I mean, even nature teaches us better than this. Have you ever seen a lion give birth to a squirrel? Have you ever seen a racehorse give birth to an unworthy worm? We are his offspring. We are bone of his bone. We are flesh of his flesh. The Bible says, beloved, now are we the sons and daughters of God. As he is, so are we in this world. That's what grace has done for us. See, you know what the problem is? Most of the people in the churches in America, they've opened up their laptop computer and moved their little pointer around. Not done a whole lot. Yes, it's a free gift. Thank God I'll be forever grateful for that. Yes, it cleanses us from all sin. Thank God I'll be forever grateful for that. We don't know what we got. This is why the Bible says, in that same letter, John says, those who say they live in God should live their lives just like Jesus did. Now, how are we supposed to do that? Shout at the roof, the roof, the roof. That's right. Now you're making me happy. And you're making your pastor happy. Grace. So how did Jesus live? Well, first of all, he walked in extraordinary godliness and purity. Right? The Apostle Paul writes to us and tells us the acceptable, everybody shout acceptable, acceptable. way to serve God. He says this, he said, let us purify ourselves. Notice he doesn't say God's going to purify you. Let us purify ourselves, other translations say cleanse ourselves, from everything, not 98% of the things, that make body and soul unclean and let us be completely holy. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Through? Let me help you understand what I'm talking about. When I was in high school, I was a very effective sinner. What does that mean? I, my nature was to sin. I did it effectively, okay? So as a very effective sinner, my dad takes me to see this movie as a young teenager. It's called The Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston. It's on the big screen, right? And I'm sitting there as a very effective sinner watching this movie. And all of a sudden, the scene comes on when the earth opens up, alive, or opens up and swallows alive into hell forever, Dathan and his buddies. When that scene came on... I started repenting like crazy. Now, I didn't know what I was doing because I'm a Catholic boy, and I, I don't know what repentance is, but I'm like, okay, I'm never doing that again. I am, like, done with that. Okay, I won't hang with that guy anymore. And I'm going to tell you something. I left that movie theater a changed man. My life was totally changed, and it lasted for about a week. <laughs> that was back to all my sin. Why? Because I had repentance but no grace. So then I'm in college, and one of my fraternity brothers tells me about Jesus, and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord, right? And at that moment, I become a child of God. But I kept living in the same manner of sin I was living in before I got saved. Why? Because I had no teaching. I didn't know what I had. I didn't know what I had on my laptop. You got it? Then one day, I'm reading the Bible, and this scripture jumps up off the page in Hebrews chapter 12. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I thought, oh, i got to see God. Okay, 
I gotta live holy. All right. Now I became a legalist. I'm beating people up everywhere. Hey, dude, you cannot do that. You won't see God. You understand? <laughs> now I'm making everybody uncomfortable. My wife and my family, everybody is uncomfortable. My friends, right? And then God speaks to me one day in his mercy. And he says, son, holiness is not a product of your flesh. It's a work of my grace. Then all of a sudden I understood. Grace is God's empowering presence. It gives me the ability to do what I otherwise couldn't do in my own ability, and that is to cleanse myself from everything that makes body or soul unclean, because this is the acceptable way to serve God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, a couple of verses after he says, pursue holiness, let us have, shout it. Grace. The roof, the roof. Grace. By which our grace empowers us that we may serve God acceptably. You know what's really scary? 98% of the Christians in America are trying to live godly in their own ability. You know what happens when you try to live godly in your own ability? You either become a hypocritical legalist, or you become a loosey-goosey, make up some strange doctrine of grace covers all the sin I love, standing on very thin ice person. <laughs> but when you understand that grace is God's empowerment, you become one happy dude. That is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the same neighborhood and said, we beg you who have received God's grace to not let it be wasted. Now, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. How could you ever waste the grace of God we've preached in America? Can I illustrate America's grace? I know I'm not quite living like I should. Thank God for his grace. That's not grace. That's scary. How could you ever waste that? Seriously. You couldn't. When you understand that grace is God's empowerment, you could understand how you could waste it. Just as if it's 2021, 10 years from now, and we decide to go check out our tribe in Africa. And we go down there, we walk up to the spot, we delivered the vehicle to them 10 years previous, and strangely enough, it's still there. Grass has grown up all around, it's covered with dust. We open up the doors, the odometer says 0.0. What do we say? They wasted the gift that we gave them 10 years ago. That is what God means when he says don't waste the grace of God. How else did Jesus live? He met the needs of humanity. He healed the sick. He cleansed the diseased. He got people delivered that were in bondage. Then you know what he says to us? As the Father sent me, now I am sending you. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Get blind eyes open, deaf ears open. The answer is... Look at Acts 4.33. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Do you notice God equates great power with great grace? Why? Because grace is God's power. Somebody says, yeah, but I'm not an apostle. Well, let me tell you about this restaurant worker. You know, they had a Starbucks or they actually had a caribou's in the lobby of the church in Jerusalem. And this guy named Stephen, he was not an apostle, not a prophet. He was a caribou worker. He cleared tables and bus tables. Look what the Bible says about Stephen, the restaurant worker. A man full of God's grace performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. How do he do it? Through the free gift of grace. You know what's so sad? We get people saved by grace. We get them in the church, right? But then after a couple years of being in the church, they think I didn't pray my hour today. I didn't do my 21 day fast in January. I must not have the power to get this guy healed. You just fell from grace because you made it into your works of how long you pray or how much you fast. Good preaching. Amen. I will help some of you. All right. How else did Jesus live? He walked in extraordinary wisdom, understanding, insight, ingenuity, and creativity. His, now this is the part I love. His wisdom astounded people, right? I mean, he had answers that caused people to marvel. Where did his wisdom come from? Luke 2.40 tells us, And the child Jesus grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, 
Where'd the wisdom come from? And the grace of God was upon him. Now, can I ask you a question? If grace is just forgiveness of sins and a ticket into heaven like we preach in America, why did Jesus need grace? He never committed a sin. Sure is quietness, Methodist church, are you still here? Are you getting this? I said, are you getting this? Do you see what we've done? We've, we've cut out a big chunk of what grace, we've cut out the primary purpose. The primary definition. It's how God introduced it. Are you seeing this? Yes, thank God. We could never be in his image if our sins weren't forgiven. Don't ever, ever take that for granted. Don't ever take for granted that it's his free unmerited gift. But we got to drive it. Are you with me? I said, are you with me? Look at the wisdom Jesus walked in. It was amazing. Literally saved a woman's life one time. One time these religious zealots catch this woman in an act of adultery. They drag her out half naked, naked into the open, markets, open temple square. First of all, I want to say, where is the guy? But then they throw her in front of Jesus and they say, all right, Jesus, Moses said, stoner, what do you say? And Jesus said, now look at the wisdom he walks in. He goes, let the first one without sin cast the first stone. Then he gets down on the dirt and starts writing all these guys' secret girlfriends' names. Mary, Elizabeth, right? <laughs> Hannah, right? And when they start seeing the girl they have been sleeping with, they drop their rocks and get out of Dodge quick, baby. His wisdom saved that woman's life. Another time, he is walking by the seashore, and there is a professional fishing company having the worst day of their career. Can you imagine owning a retail store and not making one sale all day? That's the kind of business day this professional fishing company is having. One encounter with the grace of God and Jesus, it instantly becomes the most successful, profitable business day of their career. And Jesus was not a fisherman. He was a carpenter, but he had grace. He knew where to get a donkey without having to go to Craigslist or eBay. <laughs> he paid his taxes without the H&R Block guy. I mean, what insight. He knows there is a devil on his staff before the devil ever manifested because he's got grace. So in essence, what did the grace of God give Jesus the ability to do? To change the societies he was a part of. He went to this one community called Apple Valley, and they were having this wedding. Now, weddings weren't family affairs. They were entire city affairs. Do you understand this wedding is about to tank? Do you understand the shame that's going to come on this two families from Apple Valley? But Jesus comes waltzing in, and the wedding doesn't tank, but because of the grace of God, it goes to a whole new level of excellence, baby. All because of grace. He goes to another community, and the government is going to have to provide for this little widow woman because she just lost her only son to death. For the rest of her life, the government's going to have to give her food, clothing, and shelter from taxpayers' money. One encounter with the grace of God on Jesus, the government never has to give her another penny. Her dignity was restored, and her posterity would continue because of grace. He goes to another city, and he meets up with the syndicate leader. Do you understand? The Godfather. Hey, Jesus, you come to my territory, eh? One encounter with the grace of God on Jesus. And Zacchaeus, the godfather, says, I'm never stealing again. Do you understand how much safer that city became? Because the godfather says, I'm never stealing again. Not only that, before Jesus even uttered a word because of the grace that was on him, Zacchaeus goes, hey, boss, everybody I've stolen from, I'll restore back 400%. Okay, boss? Thus stimulating the economy. And it wasn't with paper printed Monopoly government money. It was X 
actually real money. He goes to another community, and here's a young man who's completely insane out of his mind for the rest of his life. The government's going to have to provide food and clothing and a lot of clothing because he keeps ripping it off. One encounter with the grace of God and Jesus. The government never has to give him another penny. Not only that, the ten cities of the region of the Decapolis heard the kingdom of God because of that one man that encountered grace. What about all the other blind people and the deaf people and the mute people and the crippled people the government was having to give subsidy to from taxpayers and money? Now the government wouldn't have to give it anymore. And they could use the money to benefit communities in better ways. And those guys became productive citizens in society. And John said if you recorded everything Jesus did in that three and a half years, the world of books couldn't contain it. And Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And you're going to do greater works. Why are we doing the greater works? Because we don't know what's on the computer. (laughs) Amen? Amen? So in essence, what does the grace of God give us the ability to do? It gives us the ability to rule in life. Everybody say that with me. Rule in life. life. Say it again. Look at at Romans 5, 17. All who receive God's abundant grace and are freely put right with him will rule in life through Christ. (laughs) Everybody say rule. rule. Say it again. Say it again. You know, one translation says they'll rule in life like kings or queens through the grace of God. Now, you know what's sad? Most Christians are ruled by life. They don't rule in life. What does it mean to rule in life? It means you rise above the norm. You break out of the status quo. You no longer see life as an eight-to-five job, get a paycheck every other week, someday retire and then die of some kind of disease and go to heaven. What a pathetic way to live. You have been created for so much more. It means we become influencers because we know we're the head and not the tail, above only and not beneath. I don't know about you, but where I come from, Colorado, heads lead, tails follow. My observation has been society leads and church follows. What does it mean to rule in life? Let's just be practical. If you're a public school teacher, you, by the gift of grace of God on your life, are coming up with such new and innovative ways of communicating wisdom and knowledge to your public high school students. All the other teachers in your public school system are literally scratching their heads going, where is she getting these ideas from? It means if you're a designer, you're coming up with a trend-setting, innovative designs that all society's following, that all the other people in the design field are scratching their heads going, where is she getting this wisdom from? Where is she getting this creativity from? If you're in the medical field, it means you, by the gift of grace of God in your life, are coming up with new and innovative ways of treating sickness and disease that nobody's ever thought of in the medical field before, that all the other people in the medical field are scratching their heads going, where is he getting these ideas from? It means if you're a businessman, you know when to buy, when to sell, when to get in, when to get out. You just have this knack for advertising and marketing that nobody else has even thought of before. Your business is booming when everybody else is faltering. Why? Because you've got... So in essence, what does the grace of God give us the ability to do? It gives us the ability to distinguish ourselves. Everybody say, distinguish myself. Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, look at this. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself. Notice it does not say God began to distinguish him. Well, brother, I'm just waiting for God to distinguish me. You will wait until the rapture. 
Because God told man, you're in charge in the earth. Daniel began distinguishing himself. How? Through the grace that was on his life. He began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. That's a New American Standard Bible. Now listen to me. Daniel comes out of this little country. He and his three friends. They're brought into Babylon. Babylon was the most powerful nation in the world. Look, you think America is something? America is nothing compared to Babylon. Babylon literally ruled the entire world. They were number one in the world scientifically, economically, socially, politically, governmentally, in knowledge. Daniel is brought out of this little country after the king of Babylon interviews Daniel and his three friends. He determines they're ten times smarter, ten times wiser, ten times more innovative and creative than their best leaders in Babylon. Daniel starts implementing ideas they had never thought of before, and it works. He starts getting promoted like crazy above everybody else. And you know what Jesus says? Of all the men that have ever been born up to this very day, the greatest is John the Baptist, which makes John greater than Daniel. Don't try to compare the two, because John's a minister, Daniel's a government worker, but John was greater. But then Jesus says, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Which means the least in the kingdom of God is greater than Daniel. Now there's been about a billion Christians from the time of the resurrection until now. If you happen to be the least of all those billion people from the time of the resurrection until now. If you're number 999,999,999. And if you are, I really want to meet you. You're greater than John. Which makes you greater than Daniel. So why aren't you distinguishing yourself? Because we don't know what's on the computer. All right, can we, can we talk about distinguishing ourselves? You know, Jesus constantly says, you're the light of the world, right? Right? What do lights do? They distinguish themselves. Okay, walk out into a night sky. Everywhere it's dark except for where stars are. The lights distinguish themselves from the darkness. Remember Isaiah said, in the last days, darkness is going to cover the earth, but the light of God's going to rise on you, and the unbelievers are going to be drawn to your light. Light causes you to distinguish yourself. Right? So Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Can I tell you what most Christians' concept in America is of being a light? It means we go to school or we go to work, we treat everybody nice, and we can quote John 3.16. What if Daniel would have taken that concept? What if he would have adopted that mentality? He would have walked into the government offices of Babylon. He would have looked at all the leaders and said, hey, Babylonian leaders, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 23, verse 1. You know what those governmental leaders of Babylon would have said about Daniel when he went to pray at lunchtime? Because he prayed every lunchtime. They would have said, we hope the loony bird prays all day. He's so positively weird. (laughs) Why did they make it a law that he could not pray? Think. Think for just a moment. Because he's coming up with ideas they'd never thought of before. Because he's so innovative and so creative and getting promoted so rapidly above them. They're scratching their heads going, we have been taught by the finest teachers, most knowledgeable scientists in the whole world. Where He's come out of this little country. Where is he getting these ideas from? It must be from this thing called prayer. Let's make a law against it. See, Jesus never said, let your light shine that men may hear your good scriptures. He said, let your light shine that men may see your good works, that they are wrought in God. I look at Ben Gibbert, who is a very good friend of mine. He's an African-American brother. We were having dinner at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel a year ago. He's vice president of Chrysler Corporation, okay? 
he looked at me at dinner and he said, John, I didn't tell you this, but I've never told you this before. He said, but before I was vice president of Chrysler Corporation, I was on the senior design team for General Motors. He said, being one of the elite designers, there's a group of us, they do a cost analysis on each senior design team leader every year. And the cost analysis is basically how much our innovations save the company and how much our innovations make the company. Add those two figures together, you get the cost analysis for each team member on the senior design team at General Motors. He said, I'm reading in the book of Daniel. Daniel's 10 times smarter, wiser, more innovative and creative. I said, shoot, he did it under the Old Testament. I'm under grace. I need to be at least 10 times better. He said, John, the number two man, the senior design team that year was 35 million. That was their cost analysis. You know what my cost analysis was? He said, 350 million dollars, 10 times better than the number two guy. I look at I look at Jim and Kelly Townsend. They have a son named Tyler. Tyler's five foot eleven, or excuse me, five foot five. He doesn't look like a football player. He is 11 years old. He's hearing me preach this message a year ago, and he looks at his mom and dad and goes, "Shoot." I'm going to be 10 times better than all the football players in our league this year. So he plays in the city-wide Colorado Springs Football League of the 11 and 12-year-olds. He's 11 years old last fall. He hears the word of God. Do you know what the number two rusher did in the touchdowns that year, last fall? Seven touchdowns. you know what Tyler did? 17 touchdowns. They made defenses just to stop him. I'm not kidding. The coach had to have him sit out of many of the games because he was embarrassing the other teams too bad. <laughs> Another young sophomore. Here's his mom and dad hear this message two months ago in Sar- three months ago in Sarasota, Florida. He's running a 4-5-40 for his high school football team. Most NFL guys do 4-2 to 4-4, so he's quick. But he hears the word of God. You know what he does? The 40 in? 3.79. Do you know what the world record is? 3.81. He broke the world record three months ago because of the grace of God. Why? I'll tell you why. Because these young kids just simply believe the rest of the adults are sitting there going, well, I've never heard this before. I look at this in my own life. A lot of you may not know this, but my very worst subject in high school was English creative writing and foreign language. <laughs> oh yeah, it used to take me four hours to write a one-page paper. My high school English teachers would pass me so they didn't have to look at me the next year. You think I'm kidding? Do you know what I scored on the SATs? On the SATs, I scored on the English 370. That was the highest I ever scored. Do you understand? 370 out of 800, that is F minus minus. Okay? So... When God comes to me in prayer in 1991 and says, son, I want you to write. I said, okay, you got so many of us kids on the earth now, you're getting us mixed up with one another. (laughs) I said, you don't want me writing. So I didn't do anything. Just trying to be polite. I mean, God's getting us mixed up with one another. I'm just not going to ignore that. So 10 months later, two people coming up to me from two different states within two weeks of each other and both had the exact same prophetic word. And the word was this. John Bevere, if you do not write what God's giving you to write, he will give the message to somebody else and you will be judged. When a second person said it from the second state, from the state of, the second person said it from the state of Texas, two weeks after the first woman from Florida, the fear of God hit me. I said, I better write. So I wrote a contract out. I have a contract written out with God. I said, I think you're making a huge mistake. Okay. <laughs> I can't write, so I need grace. Now, I remember, I signed the contract. 
All of a sudden, when I signed it, thoughts started coming I'd never had before. I started typing so fast, I couldn't keep up with it. Now, the books are in the millions. They're in 55 languages all over the world. One of the books in 2004 won Retailer's Choice of the Year Award. You understand? Number one book of all American retailers. Are you with me? I just found out a couple months ago, or excuse me, two, three weeks ago, I'm the number two author in all of Ukraine. I just found out last year that three of my books are in the top ten bestsellers in Korea. Are you with me? I'm just in a conference with 7,500 leaders from 60 nations. I'm talking nations like Abidjan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Ar Armenia. I'm talking about Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. And I'm in this conference, and the leader gets up and says, how many of you have read one of John Bevere's books? 90% of the 7,500 leaders' hands went up. Oh, oh my goodness. Pastor walks up to me, tears pouring down his face. He says, I pastor 1,500 people from Siberia. Your books are pastoring my church. Then two guys walk up to me after I preached that night. They said, we're from Uzbekistan. We've been in jail for the last two years for our faith. Your books have been pastoring our churches. You know what I want to do? I want to find my high school English teachers. <laughs> and I want to hand them the 14 books and say, can I give you the 14 books I've written by the grace of God? Watch them literally faint, revive them, and get them saved. Why? Because it distinguishes me in their eyes. They realize, ain't no way that boy could do that. It's got to be the grace of God. <laughs> I, I, I was a terrible public speaker. One of the first times Lisa heard me preach after we were married. Bless her heart, she married me in faith. My goodness. One of the first times she heard me preach, she fell asleep within five minutes of my message. Now, she's on the front row, and she sleeps the whole message. Her best friend sitting next to her, Amy Storr, who is now pastor in San Diego, she is so deep in sleep within five minutes of my message, I'm watching drool come out of the side of Amy's mouth. Now I speak in 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 20,000 people. This year, 25,000 people in, in Indonesia in one church auditorium. People say, do you get nervous before you stand in front of 20,000 people? No, not at all. Why not? They think I'm being prideful. No, I don't get nervous at all. Why? Because I know how bad I am. And if grace doesn't show up, we're in big trouble. This is why the Apostle Paul says, not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise, not many strong are called. Why? Because the mighty, the noble, and the wise, and the strong will depend on their ability. Think about it. If you're 5% better, better than the center you work next to, why do you need grace? But Paul was one of the mighty ones and the noble ones who said, I count my mightiness and my nobleness dung, poop, so I can have the resurrection power of his grace. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of this today? Amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I went a little long. Let me just tell you this right now. Your pastor, Rob Kettling, he respects and values your time, but I'm a guest, and I decided to give you a little bit more. He was okay with that. So you just understand when you come back next week, he doesn't preach as long as me. So anyway, with your heads bowed, eyes closed. I just had to say that. I'm a guest in the house. You understand? Okay. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to ask you something. How is your relationship with God? Because let me tell you this, you can never live the life that I've just preached to you unless you are first saved by grace. The Bible makes it clear that every single person born on the face of this earth was born as a slave of sin. That's why we needed a Savior. 
God came up with a remedy. He sent Jesus Christ, born of a woman, making him 100% man. But he was fathered by the Holy Spirit, making him 100% God. Therefore, he was free from the curse of sin you and I were born under. He walked this earth perfectly, 33 and a half years, went to the cross, bore your judgment, my judgment, your condemnation, my condemnation, suffered, died. They buried him. But three days later, because he lived a spotless life, God the Father raised him from the dead. And now God Almighty has made a decree because Jesus is alive and well seated at the right hand of God Almighty. And God Almighty has made this decree that any human being on the face of this earth that receives Jesus Christ as their Lord, he then becomes their Savior. A miracle is done. That person goes from being a slave of sin to an extraordinary child of God. John, you said something about Lord. I don't hear that word very much. Let me make this really, really clear. The word Lord means supreme in authority. It carries the meaning of ownership. best way I know how to describe it is this. When a woman walks down an aisle with a white dress on in a church, the wedding march is playing. That girl is saying, goodbye, Jim. Goodbye, Kent. Goodbye, Henry. She's saying goodbye to all her old boyfriends. She's saying, this is the man I am giving myself to the rest of my life. That does not make her a perfect wife the first day, week, year, or even 50 years. It just means she's given her entire heart to him. It's all in, as pastor preached. Are you with me? When somebody gives their life to the Lordship of Jesus, that doesn't make them perfect outwardly the first day, week, year, whatever. It just means they've given their entire heart. They're all in. There are some, excuse me, there are many people in America that think this. All you have to do is believe that Jesus existed, believe he died on the cross, and that's enough to make you a Christian. If that's true, all the demons would be saved because they believe they even tremble, but they're not going to heaven. You must give him the ownership of your life. I want to ask you a question. Your head is bowed. Your eyes are closed right now because I want you alone with God. You may be able to fool the person sitting next to you, but please don't fool yourself because we're talking about eternity here. But I want to ask you this question. Who really owns your life? I think a lot of you sitting there, some of you, excuse me, sitting there would say, honestly, John, truth be told, I still own my life. Well, I'm going to give you a chance. And that means if you still own your life, you're still lost. I'm going to give you a chance to become an extraordinary child of God by giving ownership of your life to Jesus like that woman gives her life to that man in marriage. If that's you and you say, I want to give him the lordship of my life right now, then I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you today. Put him up high. Hands are going up all over. Wow, 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 wow. There must be 75, 70 hands up at least. Put him up high, really high. Wow. All right, I want you to put those hands back down. The Bible says this, with the heart one believes under right standing with God, with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Just like a girl professes those vows at the altar when she gets married. This is the way God ordained it. You don't have to go dump yourself in one of the 15,000 lakes in Minnesota. You have to just, with your mouth, give him the lordship of your life. So I want you all to pray this prayer with me, especially those 70 people that raise their hands. I want you to say this, God in heaven, say it out loud, God in heaven, forgive me for living life my way. From this moment forward, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Master. And I'm thanking you that he has paid the price for my sin and transgression. I am now a child of God because of his work at Calvary. And forever this, forever, come on, say this, forever, I declare this day Jesus Christ is my King. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's give him praise. Amen.